It was just before Christmas, 1988, and John Mosey had just dropped his 19-year-old daughter, Helga, off at Heathrow to catch a flight back to the US, where she was spending a year as an au pair. John got back home, and one of the members of the congregation of which he was a minister phoned up to say that there had been a plane crash in Scotland. He didn't think much of it. His daughter was going to the US. You don't, Scotland's north, the US is west. But he put the TV on and sat down with his wife and younger son to watch the newsflash of the devastation in Lockerbie, the Scottish village that the jet plane had crashed on. Then they said the number of the plane, Pan Am 103. And suddenly it clicked with his wife. This was the plane their daughter Helga was on. Suddenly the truth hit them. Their talented, lively daughter was dead. They would never see her again. Suddenly the full horror of the evil was not a terrible terrorist, a terrorist attack on their TV, but one that was struck at the heart of their own family. How did they respond? How would you respond? A few days later, a reporter asked John and his wife how they felt about the people who had carried out this evil attack. John responded, as far as this family is concerned, we decided the first day that whoever did it was forgiven. But how? How can you forgive people like that? The reporter asked. John's wife asked to speak and said, we are big sinners, relying on the grace of God for forgiveness. We have to forgive to receive forgiveness. We can't risk losing God's forgiveness. How would you respond if that was your situation? Speaking personally, I'm a, I'm a minister, and I've got a 19-year-old son who's traveling off to different places, not by plane. It's hard to imagine what it must feel like to lose someone in those circumstances. And I guess none of us can know for certain how we would respond in that situation. But for many people, the idea of forgiving someone who would do that to your family seems completely and utterly incomprehensible. For parents to lose a child is possibly the worst thing that could ever happen to you. This would be the hardest thing to forgive. If not the hardest thing, yeah. If you're not a Christian, why would you forgive? Surely such forgiveness seems incomprehensible. Surely the more natural response is anger, even a desire for revenge and justice on such perpetrators of evil. Yet John Mosey and his family who had been immersed in the Bible for most of their lives thought differently to the way you'd expect because they were Christians. Well, as we, we're looking at Romans 12 over these few weeks, um, and we come to the last part of the chapter, 
And in many ways, a chapter is a whole list of different instructions, and you could just go through one by one and talk about the different instructions. But, but actually, I think Paul wants us to see how all this hangs together. And right at the beginning of the chapter are two verses, verses 1 and 2, um, that are the hinge chapters in the book of Romans. So far up to, in the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul's been teaching and defending the good news about Jesus Christ. This is what God has done for us. He sent Jesus to die on the cross that we can be forgiven for our sins, that we can be made righteous in God's sight, that we can become children of God, that we can receive God's Holy Spirit and have the certain hope of eternal life. These are amazing blessings that are given to us freely when we trust in God and believe and have faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul's been explaining and showing a really deep and powerful understanding of this good news, this gospel. He's been defending it against criticism. He's been showing how it fits in with the story of Israel. And now he comes to say, what does it mean about how we live in the light of this good news? If, if we're Christians, if we believed in what Jesus has done for us, if we know God's mercies to us, what difference will it make? And Paul says, but if God has given everything for us, then can we do anything else but give everything to God? Can we do anything else but be living sacrifices to him? And what will that involve? He says the transformation of your mind. And what Paul wants us to see here is that as Christians, in the light of what God has done for us in Jesus, we think differently. So before we look at more, in more detail at how we respond to evil, before we come to think about how, um, what, how John Mosey and his family are, are great examples of what it means to think differently, let's, I want us to show two um, key things underlie what's going on in this passage. And the first one actually links very much with what we've been talking about on our weekend away. The, the theme of our weekend away has been humility. Um, and... Um, there was quite a classic moment when the, the, the person doing the children's work, um, Lynn Bone, many of you know her, she, um, she, she got the children up the front, of the front this morning and they, they would, they'd come up with a fun way of remembering the names. So um, it was, um, I'm Gus and I'm great. Or, <laughs> you know, and they had all these wonderful things and all sort of saying, it's all great, how wonderful we are. And then she said, well, what we've been talking about today, this week, is humility. <laughs> and they'd all be given these very unhumble names. But that was, um, it was great, it was fun. Um, but actually, we were thinking about humility. Um, and Steve, who was speaking, did a great job um, the first night reminding us that humility is essential to the gospel. Now, those of you who were there on Friday night um, will have heard this already, but I'm just going to summarize what he said. Um, first, he's, he says it was, it's essential to the gospel because actually we rely on Jesus being humble. If Jesus wasn't humble, then he would have stayed in heaven. It's far better in heaven than coming down to earth. It's far better in heaven than being born in a dirty stable. It's far better in heaven than actually being obedient and dying on the cross. And yet Jesus humbled himself and in obedience died even on a cross. And it's because of that that we are saved. So our salvation depends on Jesus' humility. If you want to follow Jesus' example, here is a clear example of what it means to be humble and the washing of the feet and all of that shows that, doesn't it? I've not come to be served, but to serve. But secondly, um, not only is humility important because Jesus had to be humble, but secondly, we are only saved 
through our own humility. You see, there's a sense that sin's root is dismissing any thought of our dependence on God. At sin's root, there is pride. Pride that I don't need God, I can do things my own way, I know better than God. Um, Romans 1.21 is a, right at the beginning of this book, Paul's beginning to outline the, the, what the sin's all about. And he says this, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. What did they fail to do? They failed to give thanks. And what are you doing when you give thanks? Maybe you're just doing it out of habit because your parents bashed it into you. <laughs> but actually, why is it important to give thanks? It's important to give thanks because you're acknowledging the help that other people have given you. You're acknowledging the dependence on other people. And when we fail to give thanks to God, when we fail to acknowledge that he is our creator, when we fail to acknowledge that everything we have, our very existence and all the good things in this life come from him, then we're failing to acknowledge his help. We're failing to acknowledge our dependence on him. And that's pride. Thinking we don't need God's. And Paul says, as a result, our thinking becomes futile. But you see, faith is the opposite of that. Faith says, I can't save myself. Faith says, I can't make myself good enough for God. Faith says, I can't obey the law well enough to be made right in God's sight. Faith says, I need God's help. I need Jesus' death on the cross. Romans 3, 28 says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. And that's an attitude of humility. Accepting we need God's help. We can't do it ourselves. So you see that humility is the heart of our salvation. When we think about um, the mercies of God, we think about the good news of God, humility is a key part of that. And actually when you come to Romans 12, you've got it there in front of you, look down, Romans 12, Paul introduces those great link verses 1 to 2. And what's the first thing he says? Um, he says he wants us to be transformed in the renewing of our minds. And what's the first thing that needs to be transformed? Verse 3, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. <laughs> In other words, don't be proud, be humble. Um, and it's not just a throwaway line. In verse 10, he says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. In other words, don't be proud. Don't think of yourselves as better than others, but be humble. Now, the fact that Paul has to tell us that shows that we need reminding about it. <laughs> if we're honest, we often have proud thoughts, don't we? It's one of the things I struggle with most, I think. But the fact that Paul keeps coming back to humility here shows how important it is. And actually, in the first part of the passage that um, Adjur read to us, verses 14 to 17, uh, 14 to 16, um, humility is key. And it's all about how we should be living humbly in the light of these things. Now, it's not obvious in the first verse, but I want to try and show that how humility is, is, is in the important part about how we respond to persecution. So verse 14 says, Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. What's that got to do with humility? Well, he's talking about people that persecute us. I assume he's talking about people that persecute you because you're a Christian. Okay? Well, they may persecute you for other things. That's not... My guess is that here it's 
focusing because you're a Christian, you're being persecuted. Now, when we allow persecution as a Christian to make us angry or upset, then are we actually making the persecution about us rather than Christ? Because you see, what's happening if you're being persecuted as a Christian is, is not, it's not a focus on you particularly, but actually to focus on Jesus. Do you remember um, Saul, who became Paul? He persecuted Christians to start with, didn't he? Uh, he did it until Jesus appeared to him on the Damascus Road, you know, Damascus Road experience. What did Jesus say to Saul? He didn't say, why are you persecuting my followers? He didn't say, why are you arresting and killing um, the people that claim to follow my name, my disciples? He said, why do you persecute me? And in other words, if people are having a go at you for being a Christian, I guess they're not threatening to lock you up in this country. It happens in other places. They're not threatening to kill you in this country. But, but it may be gossip in, at work. Maybe people giving you a hard time in the workplace or at school or at college or, or wherever you hang out or in the family. But they're doing that because you're a Christian. Don't take it personally. It's not about you. It's about Christ. I think, I think there's a sort of sense of humility in that. You, maybe I'm, I'm stretching a bit here, and, but... It does come in the context of humility, as we'll see. And so our response should be not to take it personally, but actually to respond in the way that Jesus responded. If they're persecuting Jesus, then we should respond as Jesus responded. And when Jesus was on the cross, what did he do? He prayed for those who were crucifying, didn't he? Forgive them, Lord, they do not know what they do. And Paul knew that when he started off as a persecutor of Christians, um, the first person that was killed was Stephen. Um, do you remember the story? Stephen was um, taken out and they put their clothes at Saul's feet and they took up stones and they stoned Stephen. One by one, they threw these massive rocks and they hit Stephen and he's being bashed down and bashed down. And how did Stephen respond? He says he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. When he said this, he fell asleep or he died. Stephen knew they weren't going at him, they are going at Christ. And so he blessed them. He prayed for their forgiveness. And God actually, in his great mercy and grace, took Saul, one of those persecutors, forgave him, and turned him into one of the great promoters of the faith. Jesus, as well as he says, when we're responding to persecution, he says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, if they're persecuting you, don't, don't think it's just about you. You're part of a long stream of followers of God that are being persecuted. Don't take it personally. But rejoice, actually, that you're on the side of God. You're on the side of Christ. Now, it's easier said than done, isn't it? But, but actually, as we're learning to think differently, as we're learning to be humble, to see ourselves as people of Christ rather than it's just about us, then we can respond effectively to persecution. But secondly, living humbly means rejoicing with the successful. Um, I was struck, apparently there's a, there's a whole long stream of commentators that um, note that um, this idea of rejoicing with those who rejoice 
is actually um, a great mark of humility. It's never occurred to me before um, studying this passage, but um, John Chrysostom, who was a great preacher in, I think, the third or fourth century, probably the third century, um, said, it's easier to weep with those who weep than to rejoice with those who rejoice. Do you think that? Why do you, why do you say that? Because it means congratulating those who succeed and it challenges our jealousy. <laughs> do you find that? Do you think, oh, that guy at school got a fantastic result in his exam. It's far better than mine. <laughs> or that vicar down the road, his church is completely flooded with people. Not so many here. <laughs> do we find it hard to rejoice with those who rejoice? I'm honest, I often do. Because jealousy is an issue, isn't it? Links with our pride. And yet Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice. It takes being humble to be able to do that. And yet actually it's far better, isn't it, when we learn to do that. Thirdly, um, he says to associate with the lowly. Now, in a way, mourning with those who mourn is associating with the lowly, isn't it? Um, then he goes on to say, do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position in verse 16. Um, in fact, weeping with those who weep is a powerful way of getting alongside or associating with um, someone who is in a really poor, desperate situation. But if you're proud, then surely you'd want to hang out with someone that's successful or to be associated with the successful. Um, I mean, think about the adverts that we watch on TV or, or see on, on posters and notice boards. They're trying to get you, they're trying to associate their product, the thing they're trying to sell you, with people, aren't they, on the, on the board? And think about the people that are often put on the board. They're either very attractive looking people, or very successful looking people, or, or they're very famous people and successful in that sense, or, or often all three. <laughs> and the message they're trying to say to you is you know, buy our product and you'll be like this guy or this girl. You'll be associating with them. They know it's a message, it's a, it's a subtle way of appealing to our, our, our basic proud attitudes. The one to associate with the well-off, the successful, the beautiful, and so on, the popular. But Jesus says, be humble. Paul says, associate with the lowly. Isn't that what Jesus did when he came? He didn't hang out with the top Pharisees. Occasionally he got invited to dinner, but usually upset them. He didn't hobnob with the chief priests. He didn't go to Herod's dinner parties. In fact, the time he met up with Herod, he refused to say anything. But he hung out with those that others wouldn't hang out with. He touched the lepers. He had dinner with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus came from the glory of heaven to be born in a stable. He lowered himself to us, down to our level. If we're Christians, if we're thinking differently, if we're thinking humbly, then surely we'll be willing to associate those that we might consider of a lower position than ourselves in society. So do you associate with the lowly? It might mean helping out um, at the St. George's product, Project 
dinner on Tuesdays. I know some of you do that. It might mean talking to the person that's not very popular. And no one else wants to talk to at work or at school. It might mean associating with those that are being bullied rather than the bullies. It might mean just going up and talking to someone at the back of church that seems to be someone that you wouldn't naturally talk to. We're called to be humble. And part of being humble means associating with those you might consider humble. So humility is a key part of what Paul is trying to say here about thinking differently, about being transformed in our thinking in response to the gospel. Humility is a key part of the gospel, and our thinking, when we're transformed by that, will be more and more humble. But actually, as we learn to think more and more humbly, something else happens, we learn to think more and more wisely. Um, I refer back earlier to a verse in Romans 1, where Paul talks about how sin is rooted in pride, and that fails to acknowledge God's and our dependence on him. It says, Paul says that that attitude is what leads to our futile thinking. And it's this futile thinking that Romans 12, in a way, is all about transforming. But the, actually, the next verse says this, Romans 1.22 says, Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. In other words, the problem with, with a proud heart is that you think you're wise, uh, and by wisdom it's... Um, you think you know the best decisions to make in life. You think you know the best way to live in life. You think you know it all, but actually the truth is you're a fool. Uh, and again, on the, the weekend away, Steve was talking about humility this morning, um, and he quoted from 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, where it says, Young men, in the same way be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's what we've been saying, isn't it, all the way along, that, you know, if you're proud, you're against God. If you're humble, you're looking for God's help. And actually, that verse quotes um, Proverbs chapter 3. Um, and, and Proverbs chapter 3 is a, it's a chapter that links wisdom with humility. In fact, um, if you were here this, and this morning, Lynn and the children's worker taught us a song. Um, and... I won't do the actions or the song, so I can't remember it. <laughs> but the verse says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Um, Proverbs chapter 3 again. Uh, and what's it saying? It's saying that if you, if, you, if you think you know everything, if you're proud in your heart, if you think you, your understanding is the right understanding, um, then you'll reject what God has to say and trust in that. But don't do that. Trust in what God has to say. Trust in his word. Listen to him. Base your life on what he teaches. Then you'll grow in real wisdom. This is a secret to wisdom. And of course, as Christians, this includes looking to Jesus as the ultimate teacher of wisdom. In a sense, Jesus' greatest section of, teach, of wise teaching comes in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 to 7. And what does he say at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? He tells the parable, and I'm sure you know the parable, the wise and the foolish builders. I'm sure if you've been in Sunday school, you've heard, sung it endless times. But the foolish man illustrated by a man building his house on the sand is the one Jesus says who hears his words and doesn't put them into practice. Why doesn't he put them into practice? Presumably because he thinks... 
that's what you think, Jesus, but actually I think this. They're too proud to accept Jesus' teaching. They're too proud to accept that the one who's come from God, the one who's created the universe, knows better than them. It's ridiculous, really, isn't it? And yes, that's foolishness. That's the way so many in our world live. But the wise man, Jesus says, the one that's illustrated by the man who builds his house on the rock, is the one who hears his words, accepts that Jesus knows better, and puts them into practice. It, wisdom grows out of a humble attitude, an attitude that says, actually, Jesus knows better. And if I live Jesus' way, then I'll be wise, even though I might not understand it or accept it. So thinking wisely is important. As we come to this passage, um, actually, we'll see that there's a lot of wisdom underlining what's going on here. Um, so let's just pause for a moment. We'll see where we come from. So we've seen that um, as Christians, our thinking should be transformed in the light of the mercies God has shown to us. Um, we see that those mercies are closely linked with both Jesus' humility in dying for us and our need to humble ourselves, to trust, not in our good, good works, but Jesus' death on the cross. That one way our thinking will be transformed will mean humble thinking. But when we think humbly, we accept God and Jesus know better than us. We trust in God's guidance and not in our own ideas. And so our thinking will be transformed from foolishness to wisdom. And what does all this do to do with responding to evil? Well, everything. There's another verse in Proverbs chapter 3. It's a verse that's possibly behind um, the teaching here in Romans 12, 17 to 21. It says this, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. And how do we shun evil? Well, we don't allow evil. We don't repay anyone evil for evil. And again, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount makes this clear, doesn't he? Matthew chapter 5, verse 39, he says, But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Or verses 43 to 44, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Presumably, if you're a Christian, your enemies are evil in some way. Unless they've got good reason to be your enemies because you're being evil in some way, but we won't go into that. Shunning evil means not resisting an evil person. Not paying back evil for evil, not trying to uh, suppress evil by destroying the people that are doing it. But it means loving your enemies. So how do we respond to evil? What does um, Romans chapter 12 actually say? Well, three things. Firstly, it says don't take revenge. It's quite straightforward, isn't it? Don't take revenge. Why not, though? Well, again, this comes back to humility. Um, Paul says, don't take revenge, um, because, in verse 19, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. You see, often one of the issues with, um, when Christians um, say, I forgive someone, is that can be taken as saying, um, what, what's happened doesn't matter. Yeah, it's, I mean, sometimes we say, don't we, if someone does something horrible to us, I say, don't worry, that doesn't matter. And 
often that is the case, isn't it? Um, sometimes people say to me, I'm really sorry I said that to you. And I say, did you? I didn't, didn't notice. <laughs> um, sometimes it doesn't matter. Sometimes people are feeling guilty for things they shouldn't feel guilty for. But actually, sometimes when people do things to you, it does matter. And when you say, I forgive them, what you're not saying is that that doesn't matter. So when John Mosey says that we decide to forgive the people that perpetrated that evil, he was not saying that what's happened is not evil. He was not saying, I don't care that my daughter is now dead. Of course he cares his daughter is dead. I'm sure it would go to his grave, one of the, probably the worst thing that's ever happened to him. Um, and actually, as Christians, we don't take revenge because we trust that, that God does care about evil, that God will judge evil. But what we're saying is it, it's, it's God's job to do that, not my job. It's God to decide what to do with those that planted that bomb on Pan Am 103. It's not my job. And according to a lot of people, even the Court of Justice, the Scottish Courts meeting in the Netherlands got it wrong as well. But God won't get it wrong. You see, that's, that, and that's a humble thing, isn't it? To accept that God will do it and not you. To accept that you're not God, you're not in the place of God, you're not to give revenge to people. But as Christians, we hope that judgment might fall, that actually that justice will be done on evil that happens. That's important. We believe in justice as Christians. We believe that judgment should come and will come. And sometimes it's right that it comes through the authorities, and we'll look at that in Romans 13 next week. But, but actually, as Christians as well, we hope that maybe the justice falls on Christ. Because when Christ died on the cross... He died for my sins. And if the people that commit those evil acts turn and seek God's forgiveness, then the judgment for those evil acts will fall also on the cross, also on Jesus. Evil will always be judged. For some people, it will be an eternal judgment by God because they have not accepted for Christ, but for those that accept Christ, that judgment will come, but actually it has come. It came when Jesus died on that cross. Don't take revenge. Leave room for God's wrath, whether it be in hell or whether it was happened on the cross. Evil is bad. Evil needs to be judged. When bad things happen, it does matter. When you forgive people, you're not saying it doesn't matter. You're not saying it won't be judged. Leave room for God's wrath. But secondly, we're called to live at peace with all people. Um, it says that clearly in verse um, 18, doesn't it? If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, in other parts of the Bible, Paul talks about trying to live at peace within the Christian community. If you read the book of Philippians, in a way, it's all about trying to live at peace within the community. Um, there's that great verse in it, um, in Philippians 4, verse 2. You odio and syndicate, I plead with you, get on! <laughs> Stop arguing! Uh, and actually, as you read through Philippians, you sort of see the whole book is geared to sort of try and deal with this problem 
of this people he loves. He obviously clearly loves and delights in the Philippian church, but there's this real issue of um, lack of peace there. Um, but here, the only place that Paul says live at peace with everyone. I don't just live at peace with other Christians, but live at peace with people that aren't Christians as well. As far as it depends on you, he says. Now, that, that's helpful, isn't it? Because sometimes you can't live at peace with people because peace takes two to tango. Does that make sense? Um, if they're not willing to live at peace with you, then you can't force them to do that. And Paul says yeah, that will be occasions when that happens. Sometimes someone may have hurt you really badly, and as a Christian you offer them forgiveness, you offer them the chance to be reconciled, but they may not want to accept that. And you can't do anything about that. But as Christians, our aim should be to live at peace with anyone. So, this means don't be a divisive person. Some people are good at causing division and lack of peace everywhere. As Christians, we're called not to be like that. It also means that we should offer forgiveness where people have hurt us. We should seek reconciliation when that's possible. And actually, when we think about things like interfaith dialogue, um, whereas we don't want to say that Christianity is the same as Islam or Hinduism or, or Buddhism, it's not. There is a place for talking with leaders from other religions in terms of trying to seek peace, in trying to stop conflict between different religious groups. I think that's an appropriate Christian way of doing things. So there is a place for interfaith dialogue when that's its aim, when that's its, what it's trying to do. So live at peace. And thirdly, do good. Um, if you read the commentaries, there's some debate about what exactly it means to pour burning coals on people's heads. Um, it's obviously not meant to be literal. <laughs> um, there's, some, there's some very interesting ideas, but, um, but probably what most commentators think it means, it means this, is actually you do good to people, uh, and in doing good to people, um, it, it makes them feel sort of ashamed of the hurt they've done to you, that it might turn them round. So again, think what Stephen did when he prayed for Saul and others. Um, it did good to them in that sense. So if your enemy is hungry, it says, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Again, that's a quote from Proverbs. This is wisdom. This is thinking wisely. And going back to John Mosey. Um, John Mosey got compensation money along with all the other families for those that died on Pan Am 103 from Libya. What did John Mosey do with the money? He bought an ambulance for a mentally handicapped children's home in Libya. He sought to do good to those, actually he doesn't really believe Libya, Libya was behind it, but to those that were seen to be the cause of his daughter's death. When he had a memorial service for his daughter, people gave thousands of pounds. What did he do with the money? use it to build a children's home in the Philippines and India. As Christians, we're called to do good, even to those that hurt us, even to those that we would count as our enemies. Because we live in response to the God who does us good.
the God who sent Jesus Christ. Let's pray.